You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. There are two key times in today's text when Elisha had the spiritual eyes to, watch this, see what really couldn't be seen. And it's actually what enabled him and those around him to understand everything they did see. It's a mouthful there, isn't it? A lot of seeing going on. Well, I I want you to see this today, okay? This primary take-home truth. Here's what it is up front. Let me just give it to you. We're going to see this unfold in 2 Kings 6 and 7. It's that what we don't see actually enables us to understand what we do see. Can you say that with me? Here we go. It's what we don't see that enables us to understand what we do see. In other words, Elisha's faith in God, not fear of a man, was the key to his true sight. Now, let's be clear. This is exactly what faith is. It's seeing what's not visibly there. It's knowing the invisible reality behind the visible actuality. Look at how plainly Hebrews 11.1 says this. It spells this out by saying that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, say it with me, things not seen. And this is very critical because without faith, as verse 6 would say to us, it's impossible to please God. Because if you come to God, then you must believe that He exists. Though you can't see Him, you know that He exists. This is what it means by the things not seen. So verse 6 follows verse 1, but guess what? If you back up to verse 29 of chapter 10, you'll see that this means that we align ourselves now with the people of this verse, which says that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who have, say it with me, Faith, we preserve our soul. So faith is extremely essential. It's necessary if we're going to come to God and if we're going to live for God and if we're going to please God. It's been my prayer this week that just as we'll see in Elisha's life, how he lived by faith and trusted God, that we too will live under this banner as well. I want to show you this principle played out in two chapters in 2 Kings. Will you turn to 2 Kings 6 and 7? We're going to see Elisha's faith front and center in a message titled, Do You See What I See? This is from 2 Kings 6 and 7. We're going to see our our take-home truth really kind of come front and center. That is what we don't see that actually enables us to understand what we do see. Let me tell you some things about these two chapters overall. Then we'll dive into the two main narratives that comprise them. I think these chapters from a literary angle, from a high-level view, they are a continuation and a description of Elisha's what we'd call double portion. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 9, this is what he asked for, a double portion. And so the scriptures here record that actually occurring. In fact, if you were to track the amount of miracles in the kings, you'll find that Elijah performed seven, and you'll find that Elisha actually performed 14. So the scriptures record for us this double portion type of ministry going on. 
And it's done so through miracle after miracle after miracle. We're looking at two today in chapter 6 and 7. And Elisha is showing himself to be God's man and God's voice in a very decadent time in Israel. He knows there is a God in Israel, even though Israel lives like there's not one. He knows he can trust God. And frankly, he knows God is the only one who can save Israel. And so he's consistently calling Israel's king and thus the nation back to repentance, back to God. And he does this through miracle after miracle after miracle. In one sense, I, I was thinking this through this way. You could say that the text portrays Elisha as the double portion prophet whose mouth was God's miracles. You don't find Elisha saying a whole lot in these texts. But you find God doing a whole lot. And Elisha just kept pointing to that and pointing to God. The two miracles that are our primary focus this morning are in chapters 6 and 7. And they contain a very specific and common theme. You know what it is by now. It's the theme of faith. So as we will see in this text, what reoccurs is Elisha viewing things through God-given spiritual eyes which see the invisible character of God even amidst the visible chaos of life. Let's tackle narrative number one, can we? It's chapter six. Begins in about verse eight, goes through about verse 23. Can I just tell you the bulk of the story? We'll read just a few verses within this text to kind of get the main point. Essentially, the king of Syria is still battling Israel, but he's kind of hit a snag. Every time he makes a plan to go to war with the king of Israel in Samaria, he seems to uh, be a step behind, and so he wonders... Why? There must be a spy in his camp. Someone's tipping off the king of Israel and their armies because they're always a step ahead of where he is. Well, someone in his regime, a servant, says, no, there's not a spy, but Yahweh, Israel's God, is telling the prophet, and he tells the king everything you're going to do. I mean, he's even hearing you when you're in private, the word bedrooms in the text, so the king says, well, if, if that's what's going on, if God's speaking to the prophet and the prophet tells the king of Israel, and I can never seem to get a jump on this, I'll just kill the prophet. So he's going to go and either capture or kill the prophet. He goes to where Elisha is. He takes an army of horses and chariots, and they surround the city. Let's pick it up in verse 15, chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. It's the king of Syria. And the servant said, speaking of his words to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? A legitimate question if you're in those situations. Then Elisha, he says, here's because there are, um, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. Elisha said to his servant, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at that moment, that didn't make sense. He wasn't seeing how two of them could be more than the hundreds, possibly thousands in the horses and chariots from Syria, correct? It's a kind of a logical response. I don't get this, Elisha. So Elisha prays, verse 17, that he says, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So Elisha was seeing something that wasn't there in one sense physically, but he knew it was there spiritually, and he wanted his servant to see it. 
The Lord then opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, (laughs) and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what you find here is that the mountain range full of God's horses and chariots, fiery horses and chariots, was far greater than just a city full of man's horses and chariots. And this relieved Elisha's servant of his fear. So he sees this happening. He's like, oh, so what I couldn't see actually helps me now understand what I did see. God's got this. Well, the Syrians did come down to fight against Elisha and his servant. They were there to capture him. But Elisha prays again that the Syrians would be blinded. So he prays, first of all, that his servant would have sight. Now he prays that the Syrians would be blinded. They are. They come down. And he says to them, listen, you're in the wrong place. Kind of a strategic response to to not get captured. He said, but I'll take you to the right place. And what happens next is quite intriguing. He leads the entire army to the capital of Samaria from Dothan to the king's presence, which in any other civilization or kingdom, that would have been immediate death. I I think the king of Israel was actually going to kill them, but Elisha steps in and says, don't kill them. Feed them. And then send them back. And here's why I think Elisha did that. Because he's, he's thinking, if you'll send back your enemy well-fed, proof that actually we knew what they were doing and spared their life, it will show God's power in ways that just slaughtering your enemy wouldn't. And so the king obliges and he says, sure. And they feed the enemy and they send them back. Can you imagine what the king of Syria thought when his army comes back well-fed and Not hungry. When they should have been killed, he probably thought, wow, your God is powerful. He kept you safe from my army. He kept you safe even when you brought them into the king's presence. What you see in this simple story is that God was fighting for Israel. You see, this is what the spiritual eyes of faith always see. They see God fighting for us even when our physical eyes only see us surrounded. This is what the two saw, Elisha and his servant. Now, interestingly, Elisha here is experiencing, I think, what David penned years earlier. Look at Psalm 34, 7. Read this with me, would you? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So here, years before, David writes from his experience about God's fighting for him and protection. Sure enough, Elisha experiences the same thing. Now, there is much related exhortation and application that I want to give about this, but I don't have time today. So I just want to select one to share with you. I'll share more this week, maybe over our different social media platforms. Be watching your feeds, and we'll share some more. This is just a a wonderful narrative that talks about how God fights for us and our faith in him. But I just need to give you one for sake of time today. Here's this one critical observation. This narrative is at the least very encouraging. But I want to spell it a different way. It's I-N-C-O-U-R-A-G-E. I-N-G. It's encouraging. Why do you spell it that way, Todd? 
Because what I find in this text for sure is that it was Elisha's faith in God that dispelled the fear and gave them courage for God. So let's learn something, church. What puts courage in us? It is not your ability to figure it out, solve it, manipulate it, handle it. It's actually your humility to trust God. And I discovered that faith is actually the ivy line that steadily and surely drips courage into our life. And this is very hopeful for me personally. You know why? Because there are, frankly, times I am afraid. I admit that to you. I don't know if it's so much a physical fear, but I look at different situations. I look at different obstacles. I see different scenarios, and I wonder, like, oh, what's going to happen there? And I get afraid. Do you ever get afraid? Do you ever wonder, like, I don't think this is going to end well. What's going to happen? And your mind plays out different equations, and you just kind of sometimes feel fear, and sometimes fear is crippling. Sometimes fear causes you to to sense a paralysis. Maybe you've never sensed fear, but if you haven't, you're lying, but most of us at times, right? <laughs> at times, we just often like, man, I, how's this going to go down? It may be because of something you've done that was stupid, and you're, you're fearful of the consequences. Maybe it's from someone else, but I think we can admit that sometimes we are afraid, and this is why I find this very hopeful, because courage isn't the absence of fear based on all that I can do. Courage is the presence of spirit-empowered boldness from knowing God can do what he needs to do. And so when I feel afraid, when I think, man, what can I do? What am I going to do? I'm not sure I can do anything. I'm directed then by God's spirit to realize that fear should not define me or detour me. Instead, knowing that I can trust God in any of that, good or bad, actually gives me courage in the middle of my fear. And then fear is eventually, and I think usually slowly, just overridden by our faith in God, which gives us courage for God. See, I think too many times church members try to muster up courage based on what they can do. All that is is a man-made type of fortitude that never lasts. But the kind of courage we're talking about that's, that's exhibited here is the kind that sees beyond what we can do and sees what God is doing and has done. So let me encourage you just basically in this simple narrative. If you're looking for courage to face life's obstacles, it comes from faith in God. It comes from knowing and seeing what you actually can't see. That's what helps you understand, enables you to kind of process what you do see. Just as these two here saw an army of horses and chariots, but they understood it when they saw what no one else saw. When they saw, when they saw God powerful on their behalf. So with clarity and simplicity... Listen very carefully to this. When you need courage for life's perplexing chaos, and we all have a degree of that at times, exercise faith in God's powerful character. 
It's what you don't see that will sustain you through what you do see. Now, I need to make an important distinction about this one observation. When we speak of God fighting for us, and no doubt he does, all right? We need to understand this, though, that all of God's victory for us is rooted in the greatest victory that he won on the cross. You see, we know intuitively that God's people, they go through many rough waters, don't they? We face many difficult trials. We endure many battles, and at times, those battles get the best of us physically. Even Elisha, at one point, died. But here's the point. Those physical, earthly, temporal battles will not have the last word. Why? Because God is fighting for us. It doesn't mean that every immediate physical thing is always solved or conquered. But it does mean that the eventual ultimate battle has been won by God through his son on the cross. This is really the point of Romans 8.31. Quite an intriguing verse. Listen very carefully. Where it says this, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now we love that verse, don't we? We want to camp on that verse, drive a stake in that verse. Man, no one can be against us. But let's be honest, sometimes you feel like people are against you. You do. In fact, sometimes you feel like there are people against you to the degree that they're actually winning the battle against you. So Todd, what do you mean when you say God's fighting for us? I don't feel like I'm winning at all sometimes. Well, you're, you're in the same camp as Paul when he wrote that because in this same passage where he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He actually says that they were being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. <laughs> he says that they were being killed all the day long. In these same verses, he lists all kinds of things that they're battling and facing. Tribulation, sword, nakedness, famine, peril. And yet he says they're more than conquerors, that if God's for them, no one can be against them. Match this up. What's going on? It's because God, through Jesus, has already fought and won the final fight for you at the cross. So even, listen very carefully, church, even if your enemy gets your body, he will not get your soul. He may take what's earthly, but he will not take what is eternal and spiritual. And if you only have physical eyes to see what is surrounding you and against you, you won't last or endure. But when you have the spiritual eyes to see that God is fighting for you and has actually already fought for you in Jesus on the cross, that's the eyes of faith to see what really you can't see and yet you, you do see. And then it helps you understand all that you actually do see. You still tracking with me Okay. So yes, even if your enemy takes your money, plunders your property, damages your rep reputation, corrupts your relationships, he cannot separate you from God and from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul courageously says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So when you think about the principle here, that eyes of faith see God fighting for us, I think this is exactly what Elisha knew, that God was fighting for them and that he would trust God who would send the ultimate king, the Messiah, the ultimate savior. 
We look back and trust God that he has sent the ultimate king, the Savior. But all of us on either side of the cross are trusting God that he has fought for us the ultimate battle and won it for us in Christ on the cross. And so as we go through life's chaos, you can trust God's character. That even if the battles scar you and hurt you, and even if they eventually take your life on this earth, God has won the battle for your soul, and nothing will separate you from him. Hallelujah, church. So I can say to you definitively, Elisha knew this and we can know it, that God fights for us. He has fought for us. He knew this. Though the visible enemy was surrounding them, the invisible God was securing them. This is what Elisha's servant didn't see (laughs) that actually enabled him to understand what he did see. Let's go to narrative number two, can we? It begins in verse 24 of chapter 6, runs through about verse 20 of chapter 7, a little longer. If the first narrative taught us about the powerful character of God and fighting for us, this one here is going to show us the merciful character of God. Let me tell you most of the story and just read some of the key verses, can I? After the end of the first narrative in which the king of Syria realized that he was not going to get one up on Israel, there was a treaty, a a ceasefire for a long time, but eventually the king of Syria did make his way back to Samaria. I believe he uh, began to be powerful over Samaria for one reason. It was the beginning of God's judgment. In a few years, we're going to see the northern kingdom completely collapse. This is the beginning of some of that. And so you begin reading verse 24, how the king did actually, King Benadad did actually win some wars. He attacked them to the point that at one point that the famine was great. He laid a siege on Samaria. No one could come in or go out. He was going to starve them to death or starve them out. It was a horrendous, horrific time. In fact, the text says to us that you could buy a a donkey's head for 80 shekels of silver. That's a lot of money for nothing. I mean, who can eat a donkey's head, right? You guys who like to smoke meat, try that. And imagine if you paid that much money for it. It was a terribly disastrous time for Israel. In fact, it was so bad that people were buying dove dung to try to figure out how to survive and stay alive. The text talks about this. You can read it, even while I'm just kind of catching you up a little bit. I wish I could say that was the extent of their depravity, but it was so ravaging in Israel that one day as the king was walking through the town, he heard two women arguing because the day before they'd agreed they would eat their children. And they ate the one child, and then the next day the, the second lady changed her mind. And they're appealing to the king for some kind of justice. I mean, how depraved are you when you're asking for justice because you're eating your children? I mean, this is wickedly horrendous. The king is angry. He's missing the whole point, by the way, but he's angry. and He knows this is from God, but he decides to take Elisha out and kill him. Isn't that interesting that in both these narratives, you have two kings with the worst responses, they're not hearing the news and repenting. They're going to kill the messenger. So he sends a messenger to Elisha 
to basically kill him. Elisha knows ahead of time that the messenger's coming. He bolts the door. And he says, well, instead of you coming here to give me news and kill me, I've got news for you. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and, a, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Wow, that's an economic turnaround that beats anything we've seen in our bailouts, isn't it? This is amazing. I mean, from 80 shekels for a donkey's head to, to just a shekel for a, a good bit of fine flour and barley for a shekel, like, there's no way this can happen overnight. And so the messenger, the captain, voices his unbelief. He says, uh, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then Elisha responds to him, you shall see it with your own eyes. Man, what faith. Amen. You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, what unfolds from there forward is you find that four lepers are waiting for their time to die outside the city. They're kind of between the Syrian camp, the base set up to siege Samaria, and they're yet not allowed inside uh, Samaria because they're leprous. So they're kind of in this no man's land. So they deduct to themselves, well, you know what? If we're going to die here, we might as well die full than die hungry, right? I mean, we can't find food in our town. We're going to die. If we go to the Syrians and they kill us, we'll be dead. But maybe they'll feed us before they kill us. So if we're going to die, no matter what happens, just take our chances with the Syrian army. So they decide to go to the Syrian army, to the base camp there. And when they get there, it's just desolate of people. Look what the Bible says in verse 6. Here's why. The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses. Now, could that have been the horses and chariots of fire? that Elisha and his servants saw in the previous chapter? I believe so. I mean, we're just talking about a two or, uh, one or two day uh, thing here, at least um, in this immediate thing, what Elisha says and now this. So maybe this is the same thing in a later time. They're hearing this. We don't know exactly, but it's the Lord's doing here for sure. And they heard the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, and they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us. In other words, he's made alliances with the Hittites and with the kings of Egypt. And they're coming against us. And so they fled away in the twilight. They abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And so all the people left, but the camp is just as it was with food and provisions and supplies. And these four lepers just kind of, quote, unquote, stumble across this. So, man, they begin to take everything they can. They hide some things. They're trying to think about the future. And then they realize, well, this isn't good. We can't be greedy. I think what you sense in the text is, is that they're understanding um, this is the work of God. And so they say, we need to tell our people. So they go back. They tell the king. The king is very insecure. He says, well, this is probably a trap. So they send some people out to kind of test it. Sure enough, it is true. Look at verse 16 now of chapter 7. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Now watch how God's word is now fulfilled. Notice the dependability of God in this simple narrative. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel. <laughs> I mean, overnight, what a turnaround. Two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And by the way, that wasn't the last time the word of God came true. 
what you'll find is as the people went out to this uh, base camp of the Syrians that was left fully stocked but with no people, they trampled over the captain who had said, I don't believe God can do that. And he died. That's the remainder of this chapter. So everything that you read in 7, 1 and 2, comes true. This is an amazing story that shows us God's merciful, dependable character. And that's the second thing we learn in this set of narratives. That the spiritual eyes of faith see God providing for us, even when our physical eyes see us short. I mean, don't you love how these two narratives point to God's character? First of all, his powerful character. Second of all, his merciful and dependable character. In fact, there couldn't be a clearer contrast between the eyes of faith, which sees God's character, and then the eyes of fear, which sees you know, man's plight. There couldn't be a clearer contrast than between Elisha and the king's captain. It's in 7, 1 and 2. I won't reread those to you, but if you're looking for a set of verses to circle, as like, wow, this is just the nut graph of what's happening in this chapter. This would be it. Elisha saw God's merciful sovereignty, but the messenger, the captain, he only saw man's miserable situation. One had physical eyes to only see what was in front of him. Elisha had spiritual eyes to actually see what he couldn't see. But watch this, church. Because Elisha saw what he really didn't see, he was able to understand what he did see. He knew God would provide for his people. He knew God would, was committed to his steadfast love for his own namesake to save his people. He knew that. So led by God, he prophesied, predicted this immediate end of the famine. It's a beautiful contrast and a beautiful picture showcasing the merciful, dependable character of God. Now, now I want you to be aware that this siege, listen very carefully here, this siege, this famine that's taking place, it's actually one predicted by God in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Even the horrific cannibalism going on was one of the predictions God made in the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 as he laid out for them the high cost of their disobedience. He said, if in this covenant you stray and disobey, here's what will happen. And he lays out several things. This is one of them. And I would say to you, yes, church, sin left to its deepest, darkest extent can end in such depraved acts as cannibalism. You may find a corollary, maybe not with cannibalism, but with immorality in Romans chapter 1 where sin left to its darkest, deepest end. When God says, you can have the full extent of all your wickedness, God turns us over. You find this happening here. This was a horrifically evil time in Israel, and yet, church, listen very carefully. Even in the middle of such wicked calamity, God shows mercy. And as I said, for no other reason than for his own name's sake. What we see happening here is another of the fulfillment of God's promise to keep his steadfast love to his people. His everlasting covenant. This is what Elisha knows. This is what Elisha sees. The merciful character of God towards his people. 
Incidentally, don't you love the way the narrative utilizes the lepers to kind of discover the good news and then share it? I love that. It, it just shows why God is the best writer and the best author. It's just such an ironic way to show we never deserve mercy. I mean, the lepers were without any way to help themselves. They were between any kind of social connection. They were hated by both sides, one for their physical condition, one because of their uh, military position. Just They had no hope, and yet who was it that stumbled across the merciful provision of God in the desert and had the, the, the insight to realize we can't hoard this. We've got to share it. Just a bunch of lepers. It's true, isn't it? God used them. And they get it in verse 9, don't they? They said, this is a day of good news. And so they didn't just keep it to themselves. They went home and told the king who told the people. This tells me something, just as a side note here. When you experience true mercy, you will be filled not with greed, but with gratitude. Your view will not be horizontal when mercy truly intersects your life. Your gaze will be vertical. You'll realize it's God working in your life, providing for you, meeting your needs. Now let me pause here and just simply plug what we're doing tonight. Tonight is an opportunity for you at our Fresh Encounter Prayer Gathering to be involved in a vertical gaze. Chris will be leading our prayer time. It's not going to be about horizontal issues. We're not going to gather and talk about ourselves. We're going to gather and be involved in a vertical gaze of God's character. So I do want to invite you back. This is exactly what some of you need. You need extended time gazing at who God is. In scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. So I do hope you'll arrange your schedule to attend and participate. Because I think actually what you need to see is what you don't see. The invisible character of God shining brightly, mercifully, powerfully, dependably in the middle of everything that you do see. You need his character to intersect with your chaos. And you need to see his mercy just extended in your life so that it prompts your gaze to go vertical. Elisha has here a vertical gaze, doesn't he? He knew God was merciful, dependable, and this is what he saw. So this morning, in no uncertain terms, church, from this side to this side, I want to call you to trust in God's merciful character and steadfast love as your source of provision for all your needs. I think this is really what Jesus was getting to in a small little verse in Matthew 6. Do you remember that story when the disciples are worried about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear? And they voice this to Jesus. And he almost in a humorous fashion says, Guys, don't worry. Have you seen the birds and the grass? I mean, God clothes them. God feeds them. Then he makes this interesting statement in verse 20 of chapter 6. He says, are you not of more value than they? Speaking of birds and grass. Hey, guess what, church? You're worth a lot more to God than birds. You're worth a lot more to God than grass. 
Are you hearing this? That means there's a hierarchy in the food chain, okay? <laughs> and God loves you supremely and dearly, and he will take care of his people. This is what you should know about God. This is actually what Sean, in our video testimony, knew about God, that God loved him. And that in the middle of his financial stupidity, God would prove merciful, get him out of that mess, and put him on the road to, to actually giving sacrificially. Can we pause here as well and just admit, quite frankly, that many of us are more like Sean than we want to admit? We find it very hard to trust God with our finances, don't we? We are often a bottom line kind of people. It has to add up. I think we have many good intentions to give sacrificially, but often we're just hesitant. We're unsure if God really will take care of our needs. If we don't know how he's going to do it, then will he really do it, right? We wonder. And so we hesitate. We, we hold. We hoard. We tend to only see the visible bills of man as opposed to the invisible resources of God. But let me commend you, church, with humility and by God's grace for your, as of late, incredible generosity. We have seen a deeper, greater generosity over the last several weeks. And I'm grateful on behalf of our elders for the way that you responded to our honesty with you about our current situation a few weeks back. In fact, I was told this week that we've, for the last three weeks, have been substantially over our budget every week. And it's not because necessarily a few people are giving more. It's because more people in general are giving. I'm looking for a nod from RJ. Thank you for the nod. I'm glad you didn't shake. <laughs> But we've talked about it. We've, we just meet, we pray, and we, we thank God together for his mercy through you and just helping us trust corporately. I remember what Aaron encouraged us to do that very first week that we had this kind of family chat. He said, let's don't approach this asking what we can do, how we're going to solve it. Let's trust God. And so we've been in this posture of trusting, and he used you in his mercy to give generously. In fact, RJ mentioned to me this week that this is the best quarter we've had since moving into this building over seven years ago. You'd asked me 10 weeks ago, are we on that kind of path? I'd have said, not on your life. But don't you love the way God's mercy has been shown to this church through your generosity? That's just one example. And so I just want to say to you, we're trusting God corporately just as we together trust God individually. But our eyes are, don't need to be on, on necessarily, now hear this well, they don't need to be on the bottom line only. Or just on the numbers, or does it add up in our minds? Our eyes need to see what God has called us to do and how to act and how to live and how to share. When we have our eyes on God, what we can't actually see, the invisible character of God's powerful, merciful, generous, dependable word, then that will cause us to live in response to that. And we'll make much sense of what we do see by actually seeing what we can't see. Let me land this plane for us, okay? Chapter 6 and 7. Here's what I think we're seeing overall. Narrative 1, God's powerful character on display. And everything's pointing to that. Narrative number 2, God's merciful character on display. His dependable character on display. Everything's pointing to that. 
And what you find here is, is something quite intriguing and quite insightful, though it shouldn't be unexpected. That every situation, the recorded response is designed to highlight God, not man. See, this book isn't really about Elisha. It's about God. It's not really about the Israelites. It's about God. And each of these two specific narratives are pointing to God's character. And specifically, how he's dependable, powerful, merciful. Each story even in its chaos, has as its ultimate aim the highlighting of God's character in some way that is actually beyond the, the, the physical or apparent need in the story. I can say to you with great confidence, the, the chaotic times of the kings are pointing us to the timeless character of the king of kings. Did you know your life is meant to do the very same thing? The chaos of your life is designed to point to the character of God. Your needs are designed to point to His power and His provision. Let me give you some examples. When life sees death, faith sees God's eventual resurrection. When life sees suffering, Faith sees God crafting an eternal weight of glory that makes your suffering look light and momentary. When you see moments of injustice and slow justice, faith sees God's incredible patience and long-suffering so that more people can repent and be saved. When you see and life sees persecution, faith sees God's crown of blessing. Do you see how our perspective is often way too horizontal, isn't it? It's way too narrow and limited. And it takes eyes of faith to see what really you can't see. But once you see that which is invisible you are enabled to understand that which actually you do see. Join me in applying this for a moment. Let's complete an exercise. The plane has landed. We're opening the doors. We're going to get out now. I want you to exit the plane with this simple exercise, this application. Will you fill this in and do it silently, personally, but will you fill this in? You can substitute the personal pronoun I there for you. When I see life, fill the blank in. Faith sees God, fill the blank in. Now as you process that and think, how does it look like? I'll share with you where I am in this currently. How God has done this over the summer. I would fill the blanks in with this. When I see life subtracting, Faith sees God sanctifying. I had to alliterate it, okay, just the way I made, so forgive me, right? <laughs> you know, over the summer, we uh, saw double-digit families move away from First Family Church. I think if I were to give you the correct number, 
it's probably 12 plus actual families who for really good reasons, mostly for jobs that they encountered opportunities for their careers. I was so happy for them, but they moved. And so that's 12 families. Some of them had six in them. Some had one in them. But there's a, there's a load of people. It seemed like every week someone saying, Todd, I took a job in North Carolina. We're moving to Colorado. And my heart rejoiced with them, but I kept seeing people just leave. And these were good families who were part of the fabric of this faith family in many ways. So don't hear this as begrudging that. I'm just showing the reality of what I kept thinking from about June, July, August. I'm like, man, God, we're going the opposite direction. <laughs> this is how pastors think, okay? We're in a town that's going this way. Lots of lost people, but we seem to be going the other way. And I, I want to say that it's got legitimate reasons. And there were some families over the course who left for other reasons. I get that. That happens in every church as well. They weren't many, but you add that to the many who were moving for right reasons, and it just seemed like, wow, God. And he began to show me that, Todd, your confidence is in the wrong place. And I experienced some needed sanctification in my life. And to be extremely transparent with you, to take some of the burden off of you, I found too much confidence in you in those seats when I should find all my confidence in God. And it was a healthy moment for me to realize, you know what? I am happy for those families. I am. But we're in a city full of people. Many of them don't know God. Let's focus on who God will bring in here, how he's opening up some seats for us. And let's not try to, let me say me, let's, I'm not going to try to find my sense of worth in if every seat is filled. I'm going to work hard, be fervent for evangelism, speak boldly for the Lord. I want to live as an ambassador. None of that's diminished at all. But can I be honest with you? God used this summer to kind of turn me in a better way from thinking that I was a good pastor and an effective leader if this place was filled. Do I think it should be filled? 100%. I'm not lying to you. But I'm not going to draw my self-worth from that. And I began to realize I was seeing life as subtracting. God mercifully intersected me there and said, Hey, Todd, let's use this to sanctify your perspective a bit. Amen. So that's kind of how this works. That's this exercise. So you've had time now to think about it, haven't you? What would you put in the blank? Maybe something like this. When... Life seems like it's betraying me. I instead will see with eyes of faith that God is building my dependence upon him. Maybe you're thinking when I was caught in my sin. Maybe you think something's crumbling now. Maybe it's actually God's mercy in catching you early before it got worse. I don't know how you fill the blanks in. But would you apply these two chapters to your current life and ask God to give you eyes to see what you actually can't see? His invisible character. So that you can actually then make sense of what you really do see. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.